0: Hi, this is Matt Slepin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is a conversation with Mary Ludgen, who's the head of research and strategy at the global real estate investment firm Heitman. She's based in Chicago. We recorded this episode in mid-May and are releasing it on June 8th. The conversation with Mary was on the topic of COVID, both on the immediate impacts on the real estate industry and on the longer-term impacts post-vaccine, assuming we get there, both on real estate, on our cities, and society more generally. Well, what a difference a few weeks make. With the killing of George Floyd and the resulting demonstrations on the one hand, and the violence and looting on the other hand, COVID has taken a back seat, or maybe sharing the front seat in our consciousness. So for really the first time on Leading Voices, I went back to a guest for a follow-on conversation. So today's episode will start with my very recent conversation with Mary about the issues relating to the unrest and long-term social and racial equity issues in our country and how the real estate industry can be responding. This is the issue that's been with us since actually the inception of our country and my earliest consciousness growing up in the 60s and one in which we've made so much and so little progress at the same time. This is a tough one and an awkward one for 60-something privileged white folks to find an authentic voice to express outrage, solidarity, and a real not transitory plan to make change. Discussion around racial equity and especially housing affordability has been a topic on leading voices, and we will look for more conversations going forward. Apart from the new preamble, much of the conversation with Mary is about post-vaccine, and let's hope that's soon and what the long-term changes to our real estate world might be after we can take the masks off. I really wanted to brainstorm that one out loud with someone. With her global view and thoughtful perspective, Mary was the perfect person with whom to have that wide-ranging conversation. I hope that you find the conversation opening up your own thoughts about what this all means over the longer term. We will continue to explore these topics, particularly around COVID and also around racial and economic equity on Leading Voices, alongside our traditional conversations about career journeys and exploring different sectors of the real estate world. Keep on listening, and if you're enjoying Leading Voices, please share with your friends. If you are not already, please subscribe to Leading Voices on your favorite podcast app. If you have feedback or thoughts, please rate us on iTunes. Please send comments through our LinkedIn release announcements, or feel free to email me at my day job as the leader of Terra Search Partners. My email is matt at terrasearchpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the episode. Mary, welcome back to Leading Voices. This is the first time I've done a second round of conversation on Leading Voices. That's because about two weeks ago in mid-May, we taped the interview that everyone's about to hear and we focused our conversation around the current status of our industries coping with covid as well as the long-term realignments likely in our world and in real estate, specifically due to COVID and its aftermath. And one of the many topics we discussed was viewing the COVID crisis through the lens of racial and income inequality and the potential of social unrest coming out of COVID. What a difference a few weeks make. Uh, Weren't we prescient? Oh, my God. Well, we've had the George Floyd murder and the resulting demonstrations and violence across the country. This has been a long-standing issue, not all of a sudden. And it's a wholly separate issue, but exacerbated by COVID. And I wanted to make sure that our conversation included some commentary on what's happening right now.
1: I appreciate having a chance to comment. Something similar happened in that I write a piece weekly for the Urban Land Institute in Chicago. And I wrote my piece on Saturday morning and then the world changed. And we chose against running what looks like such a naive piece. Mm-hmm. And it was about the problems of COVID as opposed to the problems of civil unrest. Really interesting. I studied international relations back 200 years ago And you could predict this, right? When it's made clear to people that they are being discriminated against in so many ways that are lethal. It's not solely the violence against a person in this case, George Floyd and so many other people, but it's the disparate outcomes of this disease that have fallen disproportionately in black and brown communities. So it's time for us to do something. And we're, of course, people of good hearts trying to figure out what are the smart moves. And I think one of them is to look back to what was prescribed in the 60s after the riots following the death of Martin Luther King, right? There were civil reforms that were put in written form that simply haven't been executed. How to reach out to the police. They need to serve and protect, not do the opposite. There's so many great police officers, but there are obviously so many problem cases, and we need review boards that have teeth to them. This crisis is a chance to try to think about a smart way to position the U.S. for the 21st century. We're 20 years into it, but still, let's take this as a moment to do smart things from a policy perspective that allow us to rebuild as a nation equitably
0: Mm -hmm. and think back you you raised the 60s so go back and think about the effect of the urban environment and then what the results were i think some of the results were the total wrong direction
1: Agreed. Where I live is a mile from the Austin neighborhood of Chicago, which Mm -hmm. was uh, maybe spared some of the violence of the riots in 1968 because it was a little farther west. But much of the west side of Chicago burned Mm -hmm. uh, in those riots. And with that, you got white flight, which accelerated Suburbanization was well underway by that point, that it happened in the late 40s and into the early 50s. But it pushed people who would otherwise have stayed in the city, it frightened them and pushed them away. And with that, you had the suburbanization of office, you had urban sprawl accelerate. These are not good things in the era in which we're realizing that density is one of the ways for people to live and work in mm-hmm. a lower impact on the environment. Mm-hmm. So if this would be the impetus for people to leave the city, that's the bad outcome that we would hate to have occur. Mm
0: -hmm. It feels like, I mean, there's two things going on. There's demonstrations and there's violence, and they have a separate feel and a separate meaning to them. And we have to think about that. And the same thing happened in the 60s. And I'm wondering on our world of real estate, how we change the built environment around this and how we rebuild around these subjects. That's one. And then what does our industry do in terms of our employment and our base and who our people are? So maybe address both of those.
1: Sure. So let's start with just house our people. Allow them to live in places where the cost is not so great that people have to forego other expenditures just to be able to put shelter, Mm -hmm. to create shelter, right? So Mm -hmm. that's absurd. The percentage of people in any U.S. metropolitan area that are house poor, that are living beyond what you should pay, or they're forced to pay beyond what you should uh, and have to forego other spending as a result. It's appalling to me that the U.S. government got out of the business of providing housing for people who did not have it. Mm -hmm. That was the takeaway from the 60s and the 70s, -hmm. that it got pushed to private developers. Some of them have provided perfectly fine housing, but not in the scale that we need. Mm -hmm. And the idea that you would tack onto regular mainstream market rate development, the monies that are part of, uh, what's the term?
0: Inclusionary zoning.
1: Inclusionary zoning. Thank you, Matt. That, that would fall on the private development realm, that it would tack on to ordinary market rate projects and make them more expensive in the process. Especially the government shifts responsibility to the private sector rather than taking responsibility itself. I've been told that Japan saw a homeless problem a decade or two ago and decided it was inappropriate and fixed it. I've not looked into this. I need to get more of the details of it. Mm-hmm. But we are a wealthy country. We can house our people and we can feed our people,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and do it in a smart way. I'm exhilarated by the idea that Dick Durbin, my senator, is putting forth a bill in the Senate that would reestablish the Civilian Conservation Corps. Mm-hmm. It's not going to anywhere in the current political environment, but it could be a, a platform element for Biden to run on. That would be about making smart investments that simultaneously fix problems. Mm-hmm. homelessness mm-hmm. or lack of affordable housing, put people to work and train them for work that can live beyond the government large acts. Mm-hmm. That would be a smart thing to do.
0: Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I was interviewed a few weeks ago by Gotti Kaufman and he asked me what I might want to see happen from the COVID crisis in the change in the real estate world. And one of the changes I suggested, this one may hit close to home for you was maybe a longer term investment horizon for the real estate business with part of my purpose of saying that is the churn of investments increases costs to therefore chase returns that in the housing world has exacerbated the affordability problem.
1: Uh, Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. I don't know how you change somebody's investment horizon, right? They've got it for a reason. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I can fix that one.
0: (laughs) Well, if you could have longer, if somewhat less churn and risk-adjusted returns for a longer hold, then that may have, in the case of housing, that could change some of the dynamics, but these are marginal changes, right? You have to add all these up to make the kinds of differences that you're talking about.
1: Well, I do think you're onto something in that a whole cadre of investors are active, were active in the space of buying B apartments mm-hmm. and upgrading them to B plus or A minus. And in the process, there were tenants that benefited and there were tenants that simply couldn't pay the additional rent that came with the tarted up apartment. So we as an industry need to be aware that we may have unwittingly contributed to homelessness or people paying more than their incomes can support.
0: Mm-hmm. So I
1: think being aware of the unintended consequences of what we thought were prudent actions.
0: Right. And so now talk about our industry and how our industry moves into its, I guess, its workforce and then our customers with more social equity.
1: It can't go away. And and I'm, I'm pleased to say, Work has been done in advance of COVID, the COVID crisis in Mm -hmm. this realm. The Pension Real Estate Association has linked itself up with a group that is about identifying people of color in particular in college Mm -hmm. and helping them to see real estate as a path, recognizing that if Heitman were to want to seek a minority candidate that had 15 years of acquisitions experience, we likely would not find such a person who mm-hmm. happened to also be in Chicago or want to work in Chicago. It's just a, an extremely limited pool given how unintegrated our industry is. So if you can't find them, you're going to need to make them. And that's going to involve investing starting at the college level. And I think even before that, starting at the high school level, and it's going to include trying to help people make it through college. That's the critical step. Finding somebody in college that wants to study real estate's one thing, but helping to make sure that they're, that may not otherwise go to college, get to college, because in the, in the knowledge economy, it's extremely difficult to put a career path together that doesn't involve a college degree.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had a guest on our podcast, Cedric Bobo from Project Destined. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, and I invite our listeners to listen in on that, but it is a project that brings financial literacy and hopefully college education and further for minority students from challenged neighborhoods to find pathways into the business world and find both pathways and inspiration in the business world, specifically real estate.
1: Our internship program at Heitman involves exclusively candidates from disadvantaged backgrounds, diverse candidates, Mm -hmm. and we bring them in, sometimes in between freshman and sophomore year, sometimes sophomore and junior year, with the expectation that they'll work with us for several summers. And if that goes well, there is a job waiting for them. Mm
2: -hmm. So on
1: Monday of this week, Monday June 1st, Mm -hmm. uh, our intern joined my research group. It's a really small step and it's not enough, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a starting point.
0: Never enough. It's interesting. I heard the term black elephant versus black swan the other day?
1: I read it myself for the first time the other day.
0: Yeah. Why don't you describe the term and what it means? Because I think this one, both COVID in some ways, but certainly this issue of police violence and racial inequities are black elephants.
1: Yeah. So help me to make sure that I've remembered it correctly, but I believe that the elephant is the reference to the elephant in the room. Yep. And it's this notion that we have been well aware as a nation of inequality I think less so about systemic racism. For me, reading Mm -hmm. Colson Whiteheads, the Underground Railroad, made me realize what my American history classes left out. And I thought I was a pretty aware person, but I had no awareness of the degree to which lynching was prevalent Mm -hmm. Uh, and for so many years, Mm -hmm. uh, so many centuries. So the black swan part, though, the black part, remind me of that.
0: Yeah, I think it's the black swan mashed up with the elephant in the room, which is it's not a black swan that's a surprise. It's been sitting in the corner of the room yelling increasingly, like since Ferguson, like we're here with police violence six years after Ferguson and four years after Baltimore, and we're still here.
1: 20 years after Rodney King. And it's just, it's appalling. I am a white woman of privilege, right? Not a perfect life by any means. I overcame some of obstacles of my own, right? I've had a single mom, right? But honestly, I come from a family of teachers. My grandparents on both sides went to college, right? The privilege that ensues from Mm -hmm. the educated family is what helped me get where I am. And we need to make certain that that is not solely the province of the privilege.
0: Absolutely. Well, and so my last question, I may open this up with a couple of our listeners here, but, you know, leaders in our business, since we're largely not black or brown, struggle to find an authentic voice to articulate both feelings about this, and then also to articulate real solutions that don't sound empty. And we are this, you know, over 60 generation of white people who are really privileged, and I've never felt it so much as I have during the COVID crisis, sheltering from home but how do we find that voice and then how do we actually translate the voice and feelings into things that will be long-term?
1: Well, we call on people that have been cultivating networks that are diverse. So I think of one of my dear long-term colleagues and clients, Marjorie Sang, a former head of real estate for New York Common. I'm a part of a Zoom group with Marjorie. I don't think she would mind my calling her out. And we are discussing an array of topics. They center around women but it's a diverse group of women. It's women with a bunch of different casts to us. And Marjorie has a group of young women. I mean, we're the older women, Mm -hmm. Uh, but she has a group of young minority women in real estate that she is trying to help through this crisis by giving guidance, by telling her story, by giving um, advice where possible. So those networks need to get worked on Mm -hmm. uh, as one example. And those voices need to get heard.
0: Mm And I think we have to be unembarrassed as privileged leaders in the industry to express ourselves, however inarticulately it might be, but to express solidarity and then commitment to doing things.
1: Absolutely. I chose where I lived intentionally. I live in a diverse community, diverse in racial and ethnic background, and diverse, relatively speaking, in income. So that my kids would think that was normal. And I'm realizing that's not enough. But my daughter at 21 faces versus a young black man of 21. It's just, there's no parallel. There is good work being done. And what I will suggest that's really necessary in this COVID aftermath. Well, it's not even an aftermath yet because we don't have a vaccine or therapeutics. But in this period where we're all trying to be smart and the world has changed, I'm worried that density is being seen as a vector of transmission for this virus, and that works against everything I've tried to be enabling in in our investment strategy and how I think about the world. And so we got to fight against the perceptions that might be inaccurate about where the risk lies during this period in which COVID-19 is not going to be our last pandemic, I fear. So we need to be smart and recognizing it's not about being on public transit. That's not how it gets spread. Everybody's smart. Density is not the source of the problem. It's people that don't have sick leave, paid sick leave, so they can't stay home when they're sick. It's people that didn't know enough to wash their hands. We all do that now. And people that didn't know that a mask was, if you were sick and you could stay home, yes. If you were sick and you couldn't stay home, then you put a mask on out of respect for your compatriots. So- I'm hoping that we can use research to dispel the myths that might shape locational decisions that people and firms make in the aftermath of COVID or in the pre-vaccine period.
0: Mm-hmm. Density definitely needs safety valves. There's no doubt about that.
1: For sure. But some of the densest places on earth have low caseloads. Mm-hmm. Look at Hong Kong. Hong Kong has other issues, but there have been, I believe there have been three new cases in the last two weeks. hmm absolutely and it's the densest place on the planet basically
0: we can't get rid of density to solve any of these problems because it will exacerbate all the rest of the problems especially racial equity issues well said okay that was the update conversation with mary following the george floyd killing the ensuing unrest and initial thoughts on how our industry might start long term addressing the matters of racial and social equity now Onto to the original podcast interview with Mary recorded in mid-May. So just kind of put you in a place, and of course, everyone's asking this at the beginning of every business conversation these days, which may be a long-lasting effect. Where are you? How are you? How are you kind of navigating through your weekend life and your Groundhog Day?
1: Oh, yeah. I am sitting in a room that we added on to an 1896 house designed by a really young Frank Lloyd Wright oh my in God. Oak Park, Illinois. We saw a sketch of his house on which he'd added a room, and at some point we built it. So I am the beneficiary of an earlier time, although ironically the construction of this room got interrupted by the global financial crisis, but luckily there were good enough times following that we were able to finish it. I'm sitting at the back of my house, looking out at the alley where the recycling truck has just left Mm -hmm. ordinarily. I usually work in downtown Chicago. I look forward to that again. But in the meanwhile, I am muddling through and enjoying certain aspects of this immensely, including hot lunches with my teenage son and the amount of daylight. I get to see my husband and my son during daylight, which is, My house during daylight, those are rare treats for me in a normal work environment, given the amount of travel that I do. So I've been a beneficiary of that. Mm -hmm. One of those things, I live about a mile from one of the zip codes hardest hit in Chicago by the global financial crisis, and that was only starting to recover late in that long economic expansion period. So as I sit in relative splendor, I am constantly aware of tragedies that are playing out very close by. So it keeps me grounded in the midst of my really comfortable solitude.
0: So Mary, you just made a really interesting comment, which is that you're sitting a mile from one of the zip codes most hard hit from the global financial crisis. Does that also mean it's a zip code most hard hit by the COVID virus as well? I'm just curious.
1: I can only presume the high-frequency data aren't giving me enough information, but I know that black and brown neighborhoods, and this is one of those, have been the hardest hit across the country, and certainly within Chicago, that's a dynamic. These are people that don't have the luxury of working from home in most instances, And therefore, they're going to work and taking the risk that that represents right now. I'm leaping to some conclusions, but I think they're probably pretty accurate. I'm sure we're gonna delve into the the kinds of things that we hope can get fixed as a result of this crisis. Rama Emanuel's quote about a crisis is a terrible thing to waste is pertinent because that digital divide is meaningful, not just for people that are in school, but it's clear in the workplace as well.
0: Yep, absolutely. And one of the things we'll be thinking of in the conversation is the investments that we're going to be making in the real estate world for the immediate crisis, the post-vaccine part of the crisis. Well, hopefully, those investments aren't ill-spent towards the post-vaccine world where they may come in handy as well.
1: Right, fair, fair
0: point. So let's just keep talking generally for a minute. And one experience that I have, and I think we're both in the latter third of our careers, is that I've been through three or four of these things, starting with the SNL crisis, which was the first shock of my career as a semi young pup and, you know, through the global financial crisis and through 9-11 and here we are again. And there is a familiarity to it to me, even though the experiences we're having are unknown and unprecedented. And we couldn't have predicted this specific one.
1: There is a familiarity uh, this feeling of the, it's the moment when that ride at the amusement park where the floor goes out below. Mm-hmm. But that said, there is no parallel between this and the 2001 downturn, uh, which was pretty concentrated, pretty short, scary for a while. And then people got really comfortable and bought homes during mm-hmm. a recession. Nobody did that before. There are interesting moments of parallel to the 90 the s downturn that you mentioned earlier, right. relative to not having information on valuation. And some are suggesting that that means we need to leave cap and discount rates alone, the valuation metrics, which... Makes me think they didn't live through that horrific downturn when the real estate industry was so slow to recognize the change. And we ended up with, I think it was 23 consecutive quarters of negative appreciation in Nate Creek. That was not a good thing. I guess that was an answer in which I simultaneously said there are no parallels and <laughs> there are. Maybe that's a clue as to just how confusing this time is.
0: Uh, sure. Is. Well, one, uh, one difference is then coming out of the end of the SNL crisis came the opportunity funds and, in some ways, the kind of modern institutional real estate world. And yes. that modern institutional real estate world in some fashions, loves a crisis, because that's where fortunes had been made, and there's dry powder, and we know all these words. But that does change the, the timing of a bounce back when, when we could see what's ahead of us.
1: Yes, I think you're right about that, because you're dead on in that there was capital that stayed on the sidelines in the late 1990s frightened by how badly real estate had done in the in the downturn that started with the 1991 recession, but that lingered on. So you had people that had given up on real estate, institutional investors that had given up on real estate, only to then watch fortunes made for those that were willing to take the risk and buy real estate at 33 cents on the dollar from the Resolution Trust Corporation. And so they were quick to jump in in the tech wreck. And they limited the extent to which cap rates rose and discount rates rose. It was really, really interesting to see.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: By contrast, there was a real pause in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. We all wanted to catch the knife as it was still falling, but we couldn't see the knife.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so there was a pause. Heitman bought Zippo, absolutely nothing for a year in our core fund from September of oh. when Lehman fell to September of 2009. We took a year off completely.
0: Right. And at this time, are you holding off on buying? And if the knife is falling, do you even know which knife is falling and how can you put your hand around it in, in, in any way whatsoever?
1: Yes, we are investing. There were a couple of nice developments in the decade or so since the GFC. One of those developments was the resumption of debt as an investment for institutional investors, led by the savviest of investors, even as we were picking up the pieces during the global financial crisis, to use an overused metaphor. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yet you had uh, institutional investors that were recognizing that debt offered them equity-like returns with debt-like risk. That was the mantra at the time. How nice to have somebody in the first loss position so you didn't need to be completely comfortable with valuation. If there was 30% ahead of you, you thought, you could be a little early in that environment. So that was one of the developments. Another is something that we as a firm have been doing since 1991 downturn, which is bridging the bid ask spread through structure. REITs, as an example, are terrific partners. They don't really need us in the good times in a cycle, but in the bad times when they don't like their equity pricing and debt may be less available to them or at less attractive prices, they're happy to pair up with institutional investors. And we can have a different opinion of value, but come to some arrangement that allows for us to get paid in a certain way up until we exit the investment. And then we can figure out who was right and apportion appropriate.
0: Mm-hmm. So you're describing a more resilient business because we have both debt that's institutional and then we have the ability to structure up and down the capital stack that's also institutional instead of an on-off switch for a full buy. I want to just spend a few minutes for our listeners to understand who you are and the perspective that you bring to the conversation. So you're senior managing director. I'll let you finish the sentence at Heitman. What does that mean? And what do you do in your day job? And how does this invest your perspective in what we're talking about?
1: Okay. It means I manage a group of 18 on three continents. So I have people on the ground in London, Tokyo, Hong Kong, and uh, a lot of people typically up in the air because research at Heitman is woven into the investment process from strategy creation and refinement through to the, okay, so we've decided that there may be opportunities in senior housing in this environment, given the disastrous press and disastrous consequences at certain senior housing facilities. We think there may be a buying opportunity my team is part of that identification of the buying opportunity. And then of all the places we could buy, of all the partners we could team up with, is this the right partner? Is this the right asset? So my team is part of answering that question. I sit on an investment committee, uh, so I get to see their work as they're doing it and thinking it through, and then I get to see it as it's being brought in a relative value setting uh, before the members of the investment committee, of which I am one. Uh-huh.
0: So global investing, global investing across the capital stack and global investing into niches as well as the major food groups.
1: Yes. One of the things I'm proudest of is that my firm was pretty early to recognize that there were niche property types that were coming into their own and that represented both investment opportunities because they were trading at, in hindsight, really high cap rates when we got into such sectors as medical office and student housing, senior housing and self-storage. But also these are sectors that have tenant demand drivers that are less linked to or counter cyclical from the macro economy. So they have this terrific stabilizing force in a portfolio to help lessen the cyclicality that's visible in how office does during downturns as just one example. So, I've been proud of helping to bring that into institutional portfolios. And it's something we we do in the US, but we've also been early in embracing these sectors in Europe and in Asia where they are really new. And so, we're in many instances catching them at the point where the yield spread between Mm -hmm. yield for a self storage asset in Singapore and an office asset or an industrial asset is really wide. And we're hoping to ride that compression that we experienced in the United States in those geographies.
0: Right. Right. And in many of those product types, and I'm most familiar with the apartment space in this particular example, where we're kind of exporting the institutionalized sectors that we have here and operations of those sectors to other countries.
1: Absolutely. And uh, these are sectors that scare some people. The idea of the one year lease for apartments or the 30 year lease for self storage, when proposed to an investor in whose home market longer term leases are thought to be better, we've been able to show them that one year lease in an apartment property means that you're not stuck five years after a recession wishing you hadn't signed the lease at the bottom of the market. Mm -hmm. So there is some volatility, there is some risk that you're going to see your vacancy rate rise, but it's offset by the fact that you can, if you play your rents right, you can likely hold on to your tenants, embrace your tenants. I heard your interview with Doug Bibby and, Uh and that's one of the lessons that we have learned from earlier recessions, Embrace your tenets and keep them close.
0: Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. And and talk a little bit about the perspective that you gain from having a team of 18 in London, Hong Kong and Tokyo and what they're seeing through the COVID crisis. And I'm also guessing that your team of 18 comes in all different flavors of time of life for each of them. So therefore, perspectives even different that way, too.
1: You're absolutely right about the different flavors of life. Because one of the critical things in a multi-generation workforce, which we've got in spades today, is to make certain that as the head of the group, I need to be making certain that I'm able to hear insights from my 20-somethings about how they wish to live and work and conduct their lives. I, I need to be as attuned to that as I am to my colleague with whom I've worked for 20 plus years, who's roughly my same age and Those are both valid perspectives. The olders of us can help share insights from earlier recessions. The younger among us can help share what it feels like to be 25 and living alone in an apartment and not in your home city. And what's that going to mean for their locational choices going forward?
0: Mm -hmm. And it's interesting if I'm like a deal person and I have a team all over the world, I relate to those folks and their perspectives in a very different way than if I'm a strategist, because you're listening for very different things and you're gaining data around your worldview here. I'm wondering what the surprising worldview might be from a 20-something in Asia right now around this stuff we're going through.
1: Well, the insights from Asia are particularly important relative to the future of the office, because Unless there's going to be a meaningful expansion of apartment size or living unit size in these dense cities in Asia, nobody's going to want to work from home. Mm. Working from home has been a horrific experience for people on the ground in Tokyo and Hong Kong, especially there were severe lockdowns, not allowed to be out of their apartments. People with families, it's just been a terrible time. Uh, I'll take lockdown in in Oak Park, Illinois, any day over what they've experienced. Those are not settings in which work from home is a viable option as life is currently structured. So they're going to figure out how to get back to the office and do it safely much faster than elsewhere in the globe, in part because of the timing of COVID, but in part because it's imperative for them to figure out how to make this work.
0: Hmm. How to make it work. Back in the office in a social environment, not in a 200-square-foot apartment.
1: Quite so. And and I would say one other thing, Matt, Matt, they have lived through epidemics before. And insights from Hong Kong and Tokyo, places where people put on a mask before the pandemic because they'd been through this before. And so they were well aware of means of lessening disease transmission. Obviously, contact tracing is much more acceptable, Uh, But intrusion into private life is seen as a means of staying healthy. So I think there's a model in Hong Kong and Tokyo as just two examples. Singapore, model for us uh, as to what life might look like going forward.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, 40 years ago, I was a student and I lived in Tokyo and I lived with a family in this tiny, tiny apartment. That's a long story. But the guy who I lived with was a pusher. And what that meant is in the morning, he would be this person who put a face mask on and white gloves and would push people into the subway because you can't get the last five people in by themselves. So, but that's when I first saw gloves and face masks and it was societal. Uh,
1: It's societal. Absolutely. As well as the queuing up uh, for the rent to then get pushed in.
0: (laughs) Okay. So a, a few minutes ago, we talked about pre-vaccine and post-vaccine. And let's assume that this is a, I, I, I know Trump's saying this is going to be o- over in a couple of weeks or something, but this is probably at minimum 12 months, probably 24 months, maybe 36 months of this pre-vaccine period. And we're going to have to navigate some choppy waters through that period of time. Any comments about that before we talk about post, which is really what I want to dream about with you.
1: Yes, sure. Well, I suppose that I would say that it's going to be similar to the recession or the economic part of this, which is there are many chapters in an economic recovery or during the recession itself. So similarly, there are going to be many chapters in this, the public health part of what we're doing Mm -hmm. that will include the attempts at reopening and that may include the resurgence in the fall may include reinstitution of stay at home. So I think there are going to be lots of phases of this. Thinking of anything monolithically right now is problematic.
0: And it could last that long. It's funny, when we all went in lockdown three, four months ago, we figured, okay, maybe something's happening for a month or two, and then we'll get back to normal. I think there is a way for business and the economy to adjust to oh, 36 months, maybe I can deal with that. I could put the structures in place to execute business and execute life and execute emotions through what may be a very long period of time.
1: I think that's true. Uh, That being said, somewhere in my notes is a comment from James Gorman, the head of Morgan Stanley, as we all know, he's made the decision that Many Morgan Stanley people will never come back to the office, although never is a long time, I would say to him.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And I think the quote I'm searching for is something to the effect of, we've been able to make this work. Well, to that, I would say, we've been able to make it work thus far. And I think my firm has done really well with this. We got people a second monitor so that they're not peering over a single tiny screen on their laptop. We've done other smart things, recharge days when we're all supposed to put our phones down and and not work. That being said, this is, I am in abeyance. I'm in limbo. Mm -hmm. As is my team, we are eager to be back face-to-face with one another. Or for those that are working in other offices around the globe, back into a different rhythm of communication than the 6.30 a.m., Paul, that I have every week with my team in London and in Hong Kong, I I feel like I'm in suspended animation at a really complex time when we we need to make smart decisions about how we manage our existing portfolio. In my earlier run-through of what my team does, I don't want to neglect that. We're part of the thinking through of the value of our assets on a quarterly basis, what their annual business plan should be for operation. Where do we spend money? During a, a recession, and where do we not, because it's, it's not a, a smart move, how do we cut costs?
0: It's an interesting question, though, because your comment, suspended animation, if the definition of pre-vaccine, the definition of pre-vaccine, if it is two or three years, cannot be suspended animation. It has to be a coping tool. And if you're the owner of an apartment building and you're managing it, how do you manage your folks if you're managing a retail uh, shopping center You're not in suspended animation, but you're in this midterm process that's going to be less than optimal, but it's going to be for quite a while. And I think for you as well, you may not be at the office altogether for a long, long time, but you're going to do business.
1: Correct. Now, our offices are reopening around the globe as permissible. So Hong Kong opened this past Monday as there was a relaxation broadly of the work from home requirement and bars opened again and other things. Schools reopened or are about to reopen, which is critical to being able to return to work. We have pretty large office space in some of our non-headquarters locations that is going to allow for the social distancing that is part of the pre-vaccine or pre-good therapeutics, period. But Chicago, which is our headquarters, it's unclear as to when that opening will be. Likely early June, first wave, mid-June. But I fully expect some of my team will not be back in the office this calendar year.
0: Right. And you may have, therefore, 50% headcount on the best day. Yes. And then there may be a shutdown for another month, sometime eight months in the future. And you just have to expect that stuff.
1: Exactly. So we're trying to think through the communication strategies, Mm -hmm. recognizing that part of what happens in the office is magic. It's alchemy. It's the unexpected collision that brings forth an idea. How do we respect the right of our employees to say, I can't come in. It's not healthy or safe for my, my family. I've got too long a commute, an array of utterly legit reasons that people will not be back in the office how do we make certain that we are getting their best ideas? How do we structure communication such that we do the best we can? And that may mean that we're not going to be in conference rooms when those of us are in the office talking to people that are on Zoom calls because it's hard to hear the people on the conference that that are together in a conference room. So we have to figure out what's the best way to make this work.
0: And the way to make that work is also, and you use the word respect your employees, is there will be a diversity of desire around personal and medical and health risk. Yes. That you kind of just have to accept you can't, I think, we won't be able to bully people and to say, sorry, you got to be there.
1: Oh, no. It, it, far from it. We, we need to respect that. They're working at will. And... Those individual choices need to be respected.
0: But I'm wondering if one thing that may change forever, forever is a long word, uh, would be that we've become more intimate with each other in interesting ways, And my conversations now with CEOs, I'm doing Zoom calls with my clients, and they're sitting there in a t-shirt, I'm sitting there in a t-shirt, their dog walks by, their kid walks by, they take a, a bio break. And that level of, I don't know if it's the right word, but we see each other's personal lives in a deeper way than we used to. And I think just have to accept that.
1: Beyond accept, I think it's great. Yeah, that's right. The youngest member of my team is three months old, as in he's been sitting in on our Zoom calls as a research group, right? He's learned the term transfer of development rights and air <laughs> rights. Like this is really important stuff. But I do think this intersection of home and work It's helping and it may be bringing into the light some of the challenges that are still there with the division of labor within households and and other things that I hope that we come out of this with the flexibility for members of my team, even if they've chosen to come back into the office three days a week, I'm perfectly fine with three Mm -hmm. days at office, two days at home on a permanent basis because it allows them to run their household life better
0: right which you now have a a window into that you never did before so let's stick with these so i have big questions and you'll have the answers to every one of these i'm sure so cities and density urbanization but that's been the theme of the last 15 years in the real estate business if not longer or the theme of humanity are they dead has that trend stopped because of this and has it stopped permanently
1: i don't think so Uh, As you and I've discussed, I'm I'm putting my paradigm back together in the era of COVID. And part of that paradigm historically was that many of the most vibrant places in the world are center cities. Mm -hmm. It's not for everybody. If you look at office net absorption trends pre-crisis, there was a split between the northern part of the U.S. where center cities beat suburban areas in every dimension of office demand and performance. But in the southern half of the U.S., the suburbs are either equal to or favored as locations. So going forward, are cities dead? No. Are there some cities that will have difficult transitions? Yes. So New York City is going to be challenged by a bunch of firms that were already shipping employees to less expensive locations. You right. can see that in the banking sector. That's going to continue. At the same time that there's something on the order of 16 million square feet of office space under construction, rents are going to be under pressure. Is that the end of New York City? By no means. No way. The banking sector has been under refurbishment for a decade since uh, the global financial crisis. But meanwhile, tech jobs were exploding in New York before this. I think they'll continue, but there will be holes in that economy as just one example. Mm -hmm. I do think that there will be differential approaches by companies to where the office is. Maybe the office is literally virtual, in which case the people that were oriented toward working downtown, living nearby, they may choose something else. We were already observing Millennials ages, the slice of the millennials aged 35 to 39, they were already leaving center cities and migrating to the suburbs of their metropolitan areas before COVID. That trend will continue. But I do think that those people that are pre children or post children and for whom the office reopens in a center city. You could see an increase in apartment demand or residential demand near to office so people don't have to worry about their commute. They can walk
2: Mm -hmm.
1: or they can bike. So there will be differential dynamics, but I think cities will end this better than before, particularly those that have deep cultural elements that will be important Once we're no longer social distancing or even as we're social distancing, that are going to be part of how the baby boom wants to spend its retirement or its later working years and into retirement.
0: So you just said city that those cities will dream which ones they are. will end this better than before. I agree with that. But I also think post-COVID there will be fundamental changes because there'll be another thing like COVID, be it terrorism, which has some of the same risk factors. Or another pandemic, and New York is tied together just to pick on New York by the subway, which yes. may be one of those places that has to be reinvented. And boy, that's expensive.
1: It is expensive, uh, but there were metropolitan areas where the office inventory shrank between 2010 and 2015, Chicago and New York among them, and that shrinking office inventory was about. B and C buildings coming out of the space, obsolete, non functional office buildings coming out of the inventory and being converted to apartments, to condos, and to hotel. That dynamic could happen again. Mm-hmm.
0: And what happens to secondary cities? What happens to Nashville or Colorado Springs, right? Cities yeah. that have a slower pace of life, less density, more fresh air very close by. Does that become a more viable solution alongside cities being better than they were before?
1: I think that the term more viable is an interesting one. They were viable before. Mm -hmm. What institutional investors need to recognize is just how viable they will be going forward, because there will be investment opportunities in these smaller markets. And some of these smaller markets are becoming not so small. Austin, Texas is one of those former tertiary markets that is it saw the fastest rate of population growth throughout the, the last decade, year to year. And it is it should not be um viewed as a secondary market. There's mm-hmm. nothing secondary about
0: Austin. Not at all. And if we ask this question, we've been kind of popping around US cities. If I ask the same question about urbanization and what does it mean, and we talk about Asian cities or Asian countries, how would you be answering the question then? Same? Different?
1: Some similar dynamics. You have some neighborhoods in Tokyo that are more live, work, play neighborhoods. Those will be in high demand going forward, as for many people, commuting will not be an appealing idea in the era of either future pandemics or current pandemic, or as you put it, the risk of terrorism. So for some people, the being able to walk to work, which you can do in parts of Singapore, you can do in parts of Tokyo and Hong Kong, uh, that's going to be really attractive or a bicycle commute, really attractive.
0: It's funny, the blessing of my life and our listeners know this is I have been able to walk to work or bike commute to work for years and years. And both of them are delightful in different ways, but it's such a luxury. Okay, so let's Flip to another subject. Talk about globalization. And there have been trends, backlashes against globalization, particularly in the Trump era and immigration and tariffs and all that stuff. But it feels like an inevitable trend. How does this change that, modify that?
1: Well, let me first, um, in answering that, let me tell you, I had this epiphany about the number of times in a decade that a city goes through a hundred year flood. Yes. Like Houston, poor Houston, since Harvey, there's that was a thousand year flood. And then there've been 200 year floods. So that's what climate change has wrought, this intensification of the outbreak of supposed to be unusual events. Yes. Now you and I, we had one whopper of a recession in the early nineties, but that was not so much about the recession. It was more about how real estate investments were structured. Then we had one pretty normal recession, three quarters long in 2001. Mm-hmm. And then we've had 2,000 year flood kind of recessions. And I put the intensification element to that uh, with globalization. What globalization has allowed for is something that used to be contained to a single continent or a single country is now a global event. Mm -hmm. There are good things about globalization and there are bad things about it. And I think there is going to be mindfulness, I hope there's going to be mindfulness about what aspects do we want to retain of pre-COVID global life? Right. Global view of things, that's a positive, right? For people in the U.S. to go and study abroad, for people in Melbourne, Australia, to, to go to school, not in their hometown, but in another city or another country, that's positive from a worldview perspective. But the dependency on a single country for our pharmaceutical needs, that's not smart. So I hope that we're going to be able to differentiate between what's smart and wise about globalization, and where is it creating vulnerabilities that are not tolerable
0: how do you make decisions about stuff like that cuz for example if we uh, capitalism would suggest that you have utter dependence on kind of the best price and capitalism wouldn't necessarily care that all medical devices come from china yeah just for example so therefore you need collective decision-making government or something to do that. And we don't have that kind of institution in place at the moment.
1: Well, Matt, I know you were going to say the word government, because in fact, I lean that direction. There is a role for government in doing what the private sector alone will not do. And I, I think this, this crisis has taught us the importance of that. So I hope government will behave in a wise way going forward because we sure need it. And we need to undo things like that people's healthcare or their insurance, I should say, is linked to their employer, creates a vulnerability that is just not wise. So this, I hope, is going to be a time for us to look at other models. And we're in this crisis for quite a long while based upon my firm's house view of the economy. And uh, it's a long time for us to try to figure through some workarounds. Better solutions, better
0: structure. And we'll get political just for 30 seconds here. If there's ever been a time where you understand that your neighbor's health care matters to you equally to your own health care, it's now. So let's keep going. A related question travel. Is travel dead? How will it come back? How will it be? And so much of the work lives that you and I've had through our careers has been dependent upon a ton of travel, business yeah. travel, conference travel. That's how we get to know people and how we have recreation as well. So just talk about that.
1: So I think travel will come back. It came back after SARS. It came back after other regional epidemics and came back meaningfully. Asia's seen regular outbreaks of pretty horrific stuff. And Asians travel at the drop of a hat if they're of a certain position in business or a particular position in society, that it's just normal stuff. So I I think it will become normal again for something. I do not believe that all these wonderful Zoom calls that I've been part of from my various institutions, including ULI and PREA and the Economic Club, these have been marvelous. Not always, but they've been generally really good. Mm -hmm. But they don't replace that Again, it's like the office, the alchemy of what happens in person. And I say this as an extrovert, but as an extrovert, I can make phone calls turn into hullabaloos in the most positive sense, right? I've got that ability. That's one of my skills. Mm -hmm. But my more introverted types, that is not where they're going to shine and make the connections that they need in a relationship business like the institutional real estate investment world. So we're not all going to do business calls from home once the all-clear order is given, which could be a long time. But I I do think there will be some elements of this that come back to life. And business travel will resume. Let's call it 2022. We'll be seeing more normalized levels of business travel.
0: Uh So you just mentioned ULI and PRIA, so two preeminent organizations, trade associations, organizations in the real estate world where we do convene. And convening together is a wonderful thing, although I I think it's maybe too much, but let's think about that. But then how do those organizations that may not convene in 2020 or even 2021, how do they make it to reconvene in 2022? How do theaters make it to 2022 without people? Yes. So talk about that a little bit.
1: I don't know. I'm I'm reeling from the uh, announcement that the restaurant at the base of my office building is part of a chain that's closing all of its stores.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, And it's just one example of the losses that we are going to hear about one after another as favored institutions go away, cannot survive this. I'm a live theater fan. Uh, One of my favorite things to do is to get sent to somebody else's conference in New York City, not an organization in which I have to be at the schmooze hour and I can sneak away and buy half price tickets and go to the theater, oh, that is heaven. But I don't know what the future is for theater other than at some point, we are not gonna be looking at the person next to us as a germ factory and as a risk. That after SARS, at some point, people became less worried about who was adjacent, they put their mask on or they stayed at home if they themselves were sick, but they didn't worry about who was next to them. We will get back to that, but there will be wreckage in the meanwhile.
0: And back to a different question. So we've built our careers and you're an extrovert, I'm an extrovert, I love being around people, I gain energy from people. But for those younger people who may not have this over a three or four year period of time, and we do return to some level of normal how do those people build their careers with this having been the learning time of their development where relationships mean a whole different thing?
1: Ugh. It's such a great point. I'm going to um, not particularly answer the question, but I'm going to give an insight that I think is about why the office is so important
2: Mm -hmm.
1: that our firms are doing as well as they are now is reflective of a culture that got established when we all worked together and bumped into one another on a daily or weekly basis. The guidance I would give to somebody that is contemplating a completely remote workforce is good luck on that creation of culture. And first, now I am gonna answer your question having made that intro. I think it's going to be a period where people are going to need to focus on other things than on their relationship development. They can do relationship work through smart written correspondence. My firm is writing more impromptu kinds of things and sending them out to clients. And so people can make their careers by smart, short vignettes of insights into how COVID is changing things or how it's not changing things. Mm -hmm. So focus on what they know how to do well and recognize that this is a holding period. And so there's some things they can accomplish during this time and some things that it will take face to face reunions. Mm -hmm really
0: solidify. Mm. It's really interesting. So at TerraSearch Partners, we talk about this all the time. And we talk about relationship building versus thought leadership. We're maybe better, we're, we're good at both. <laughs> but we spend a lot of time on thought leadership. And now you have to, right? Because the relationship yeah. side isn't there as much. You just can't touch as many people.
1: Yes, it's true. Or you can touch a lot more through an email blast. Right. But there needs to be a follow up to make sure it's getting through.
0: And there's a lot of email blasts, a lot of podcasts. There are a <laughs> lot of
1: email blasts, righto.
0: Um, so let's keep bouncing on subjects here. What, what does all this mean for investment in environmental, global warming, resilience issues? Can we afford to spend dough on that? And can the dough that we spend on that be double duty? And I'm now for the second time, I'll mash COVID up with terrorism as two global threats.
1: Oh, fair, fair question. We're going to need to invest in green. We need to not let this fall out of our focus. COVID-19 has pushed a lot of things from the front page of newspapers from early on in whatever it is that you read, however you read it, and we need to make sure that it gets back up there. For those that have already made investments in reducing waste, reducing resource use in their buildings, they're benefiting from those investments because that makes their operating expenses lower. And that's important. Mm-hmm. As governments try to do the part of the recession response or COVID response, it's not about relief, but it's about stimulating an economy. Mm-hmm. We need to be smart about investing in green infrastructure, or tying loans that the governments around the globe are making to the airline industry, for instance, to reduction in emissions. We need to not let this crisis cause us to avoid uh, dealing with another crisis that is literally lapping at our shores.
0: Mm -hmm. And for real estate investment, I've wondered what the economic justification is for greening a building. Does that justification become more compelling or less compelling because of the new investments that have to be made now?
1: I think that there was a commissioner of the environment in, in Chicago named Sadhu Johnston, I think he's Philadelphia's commissioner of it now, who said something meaningful 15 years ago, which is green is green. What he's trying to say there is investing in green infrastructure within your buildings, greening your buildings, be they apartments or office or industrial or whatever, that results in money savings. And I think that that's been proved, ouch, over the last decade. So to the extent that a capital expenditure needs to be made at a property and the decision is made to proceed with that in this income-constrained environment, then it needs to be done in the smartest possible way. And the cost of green building materials has come way down as they've been embraced by more and more people. So it's not the case that you have to spend 15% more to get a green version of something. That Mm -hmm. cost reduction or the differential in cost has come way down, making it possible to do the right thing at no extra expense. Mm
0: -hmm. And when you guys analyze a building, you're looking particularly carefully at that?
1: Uh, We certainly are. When we invest, we're always looking at what can we do to reduce energy costs and make more resilient a building. But now I've forgotten your original question, Matt. Sorry.
0: (laughs) Well, well, I'm thinking about when you're making an investment and how much might you make an investment looking forward, both on what the current environmental footprint of that building is or how green it is, whatever the right word is, and then how that building might be resilient and are, you know, are there cities that you would be more or less comfortable investing in because of, you know, sea level rise and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, I'm so glad that you pivoted from thinking about the building and its sustainability yep. and its resilience to the broader topic of climate risk, climate mm-hmm. change and climate risk. Because I think as people that we tell our clients that we know how to underwrite risk and opportunity, but for many people that underwriting of risk ignored all of the climate-related risk that buildings embody or that investment in a specific location embodies as you're you're, you're buying the ability of a metropolitan area or a municipality to weather climate change well. So I think this is going to be on people's minds as they contemplate whether they want to take sea-level rise on at the same time that they're taking the risk that a particular economy is going to rebound We've got some places that are much more vulnerable to sea level rise than others. And that that, costs, that it's wildly expensive. And at a time when taxes are going to rise broadly, mm-hmm. one can anticipate, you can expect even higher tax increases in those markets that are having to deal with climate change in the form of sea level rise.
0: Gosh, we have sea level rise, earthquake risk, and fire risk <laughs> where I live. So...
1: You do. And the buildings have been built presumably in San Francisco to withstand the earthquake risk, but maybe not so much the sea level rise component and none of them reflect the wildfire risk, which is going to mean, I think your summer is going to include more moments where pg e is not providing service right. because of the wildfire risk, the sparking risk.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So yes, that's Coming into focus for institutions in a way that it wasn't even two years ago.
0: It's interesting, my family, we bought our COVID masks a year and a half ago when San Francisco was too smoky to walk around due to the fires.
1: <sighs> there we go. My COVID mask, by the way, came from the Y2K kit that my husband put for me. So I have an N95 Max that luckily it's probably past an expiration date, but it seems to be working.
0: Okay. I got two or three more big picture questions. Talk about yes. t- technology in all of this and technology, meaning what is like Amazon do to our world and the rhythm of how we do business or technology, meaning, you know, around the ability to intrude nicely or not nicely in our health mm-hmm. lives.
1: Sure. So let me start with Amazon and say I'm on record as ranting periodically about the risk that we are taking as a nation in particular, but to some extent globally, in letting a monopoly get created. Do we really want to kill all of our local retailers and put that kind of pricing power and control in one guy's hands? all for the convenience that you don't have to get off your couch to go and get toilet paper or whatever it is, I don't think that's a wise bargain that many people have been willing to strike. So that's first. And I do hope that that people have been supporting their local retailers in this environment because the value of that bookstore down the street, when it opens again for me, is huge. But Mm -hmm. that's a personal preference. Mm -hmm. That being said, the technology that we've got is going to help us with some of the near-term fixes that we need in order for life to resume in somewhat more normal way. I'm thinking specifically in the, how do you underwrite an investment in this environment? How do you tour the building? How do you tour the competitors? What are the technological resources we can draw on to be able to do the kind of due diligence that our clients expect us to do? I heard yesterday about, drones being used to do apartment inspections, right? A resident is asked to open their door at a certain time and the drone flies in and does a quick <laughs> check of various things, just <laughs> Just one example of where technology can be refined right. to help us through this. As you can imagine, I'm sure since you've spoken with Doug Bibi, uh, we are renting apartments through virtual tours. While there was a decline in apartment rentals in the early days of COVID shutdowns. We saw an uptick in the number of new leases in the last two weeks, and they are happening because people can tour virtually.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely true. And I think that, again, I, I keep referring to this, but I think there's future pandemics. I think there's future terrorist questions. I do tie them together because I see the need in our society to open and shut the gates in targeted areas. I Actually, you mentioned PG&E in, in the Bay Area you know, the electricity, they turn it off county by county instead of block by block, which I find technologically, you know, infantile. But yes. but I think gates are gonna open and close, and that's a technology issue, but it's also an intrusion issue.
1: Well said. We are going to need to accept a certain level of intrusion as part of what sets us free.
0: I love it. Yeah.
1: Contact tracing, it's a wise idea. I will take it more seriously when I am doing the form as I go to Singapore uh, about where it is that I'm staying while I'm there, I will take that much more seriously going forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a nation, we need to take it seriously. When the U.S. is reopening, it, it's tragically without some of those things that are in place in other parts of the globe that have made reopening a wiser idea. Uh, and we are lacking in the contract tracing staffing that we need.
0: Mm-hmm. And since we're, it feels like we're not talking about real estate, but we are, because the owners of real estate will be implementing these programs and policies. When you walk into an office building, you walk into a shopping mall, you walk into an apartment building, someone may take your temperature. Yes. And real estate yes. owners taking temperature, that it feels kind of weird. Thank God it's on the forehead now.
1: Thank God. And the question becomes, what do you do if they're running a temperature? What's your moral hazard? Right. What's your responsibility there? And I think that there may be thermometers in Building lobbies, but I think it's far more the responsibility of the individual tenant to police their employees and those coming into their space.
0: And does our industry start to answer this, or do individual owners start to answer this? And this gets back to our trade associations where we get to convene together around best practices about addressing these things we never imagined we'd have to.
1: Uh, Absolutely. My metaphor is that I feel as if I'm using the flashlight function on my phone Mm -hmm. and I'm looking straight ahead with it and I can see really clearly in that direction and I think I've got it. And then I shift two inches to the right. (laughs) And so these industry groups, however they're convening, are really helpful in making certain that we've taken that flashlight and look around 360 degrees.
0: Right. It's interesting. The next podcast is going to be with Amy Rose. And we're talking about New York and how they manage apartment buildings there and manage real yeah. estate there. But she's talking constantly with her colleagues because they're all in uncharted territory. They can't invent the wheel themselves. But there may be it. And I'm guessing this is in the property management, property operations side of our industry. You know, maybe there's a chief health officer or a chief ethics officer around how we deal with risk of human beings.
1: Oh, fair. That's a a realm I've not begun to think about, but you're shining a light on something that I haven't yet considered.
0: Another one that's coming. So final big picture question, then we'll move on and we're going to run out of time on our conversation, unfortunately. But one of the outstanding issues, and it's in our country and... We probably both read the New York Times, which has really been focusing on kind of income inequality and disparity of wealth. And that's going to come back and get us. And I'll mash that up with the heaviest conversation at our dinner table with our 20-something-year-old who cares deeply about this, as do we, becomes kind of tenant rights. And tenants may be small businesses or tenants may be individuals in apartment buildings, but they all matter. And that gets this income inequality So talk about that a little bit as a risk and something we could be doing something about or not.
1: So I'll answer it by saying where many of the developed countries in the world, and particularly the U.S. has gotten to from an income inequality perspective, it's not a viable structure going forward. Back in graduate school, I studied under a guy that had written books about what are the conditions under which war occurs and why men rebel was the name of his, Mm. his book. And people rebel under conditions in which they know how the 1% lives. And so we're setting up a really bad backdrop. And the fact that immigrants that are picking crops for us have been declared essential workers, but do not have a path to citizenship. Let's shine a light on that.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So the optimist in me is hoping that, this will allow us to reconsider some of the structures that we have built, societal structures that we have built that are not bringing out the best for all of us. And that includes policy fixes that include things like, as I mentioned earlier, the provision of health care and in provision of insurance should not be tied to employment. That's just mm-hmm. not a smart way to go. We need a smart child care policy so that everyone can kind of stay home if they need to, if they're sick, sick leave policy, I should say, as well as childcare policy. So I'm hoping, I got a master's degree in policy analysis mm-hmm. 200 years ago. I'm hoping that this is a moment where we can start thinking about what's the good of what came before COVID? What's the bad that we want to eradicate? And how can we in a use the stimulus and other moves made to get us out of this economic whole. How can that help us toward a better future?
0: (laughs) And Mary, let's push it, both of us, because we we come from similar positions on this stuff. But I don't think this is idealism for people in the real estate industry. So maybe it is idealism. However, the push in California for rent control. sure I just saw the push in California for some kind of rent control for small businesses, rent strikes. This is the apartment business and NIMBYism making so you can't build another building in a densifying environment and that there's no child care. So therefore, half of our staff can't come to work. So yeah. this is in our face, not idealism.
1: Yeah. OK, so let's go to with that. The fact is, sadly, that efforts to control rents have failed. They tend to lead mm-hmm. to lesser levels of supply being developed, and that tends to then lead to even greater levels of rent increase than would have happened were those rent controls not in place. In the U.S., the federal government has gotten out of the business of housing provision, and that's a gap that needs to be filled. No amount of taxing office developers in San Francisco uh, or apartment developers in San Francisco to build additional units elsewhere. That's just not working as a system. So let's recognize that real estate investors are not evil people. It's that the structure is not well set up. The federal government need, from my perspective, needs to get involved in the provision of housing for those that can't afford it. And there need to be incentives put in place for the provision of the middle income housing, which has been hard hit by dynamics of the last decade or so. But if you look at at places around the globe that have instituted rent controls, among other policies, it has led to a lack of provision of supply. When we underwrite investments in the Netherlands, we often don't even have to think about new competition when we're buying an apartment property, because there simply isn't any. That's not right. helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I was on a Fisher Center called uh, UC Berkeley Fisher Center a couple weeks ago, and the end comments from two of the investors, so competitive firms to yours, both of them in terms of what they worry about the most is around social inequality and social unrest as real threats and risks if we don't do something about it well.
1: I agree completely. It emanates out of, if if you don't feel you can live in a a safe place, that can spark a great deal of of action, quite Mm -hmm. appropriate action.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm going to use two bad words, and and Doug Bibby and I discussed this, and it was a fun, interesting, sad conversation. Two negative words in our culture are landlord and developer. Yes, Those could be good, decent words. And one of the interesting things that we're seeing around the landlord word is in the apartment business, again, what Doug Bibby said, and I, I know it's true, is that landlords loving their tenants, not all, but some. And you see it in the retail world where you have retail landlords who are investing in their businesses. I think Brookfield just put a $5 billion fund to invest in retail tenants. I was on the phone with a client yesterday where They're doing a total partnership with the restaurants in their outdoor shopping areas because they need that as a draw. So enlightened self-interest. But talk about the words landlord and developer and and how we may reclaim that in our world.
1: Thank you for that. Great question. Let me start with a quick anecdote. I uh, live in a town in which one of our clients owns property. So I sit on the board of a lo- local downtown organization, and we were, as a board, in support of a new apartment building being built in the downtown that would have involved relaxing of the zoning ordinance that allowed for a 10-story building, and when we were arguing that they should be able to build a 19- or 20-story building. Mm-hmm. And these apartment rents would be lower than the existing apartment rents for modern buildings because they'd be smaller units. It seemed to fit a niche in the committee that was really important. So I'm getting up to testify before the village board and I'm reading my credentials Right. and members of my community begin to hiss at me as I'm reading my credentials, because I was perceived as either a landlord or a developer or a, a sycophant to these developers and landlords. So that's the, the illustration of why those words have become so dirty. It's right. fascinating. I think what we need to understand is that the developer is trying to To make a profit, because that's what business does, I wanted to turn to the good citizens that were hissing me and ask how it is that they survive as households. Somebody in their home worked for a for-profit organization. Likely they did. And why were they making a distinction between my for-profit business and their for-profit business? Another way to look at it is, I think we need to understand that some of the systems we put in place are not working to our best advantage. That includes thinking about single family zoning and the ways that suburbs have been structured that keep people out rather than making it viable for development to occur across an array of price points. Mm -hmm. I'm sure Dr. Bibby was talking about some of the layering on of costs that have made apartment development so expensive on a per unit basis over the last decade, some of them most of them well-intentioned about life safety, about greening the buildings. But we need to understand that they come at a cost. And I think that's where public programs that involve investment in existing but perhaps abandoned housing, in many of our center cities, there are abandoned units that should be brought back because they're often located near transit. They would do an array of positive things. So I would call for smart policy in this environment, and that will take pressure off of landlords and developers. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I think our job as an industry and you're a leader in industry associations is to both raise the bar of behavior within the industry and then reclaim those words so that we are true citizens.
1: Uh, Fair point. That being said, I do have a page in which I've taken notes that across the header, header of it is the word plagues have created positive change in the past. And one of those was the end to the feudal system that included the creation of the word landlord, right? We are linked to the feudal system, but so maybe that's something we can pray.
0: Let's play with it. We're going to have to wrap up soon. And before I we talk just a little bit about career questions, which is supposed to be the theme of Leading Voices, so we're going to get there. But any kind of final wrap-up comments on being within the COVID crisis and getting out of it that we've missed? Any themes we've missed that you think are important?
1: I guess I would say the longer this lasts, the more consequential will be the after effects. So if we are indeed in lockdown, there will be more people that will decide, if we're in lockdown for a long while, Mm -hmm. there will be more people that decide they want a lower density lifestyle. And there will be investment opportunities that come out of that this could be a good thing for suburban office demand. Mm-hmm. Am I suggesting that suburban office vacancies go to 4% around the country? No way. But there are some locations that will be advantaged in this, number, especially if it lasts for a long while. But I guess I would leave it there. It's the real estate. We don't require everybody to move in one direction in order for there to be smart investment moves. We can capture the various branching off of certain larger trends and and make money off of that.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's both making money. It's interesting because it it also means there's a variety of answers. There's a variety of sectors to work in. There's a variety of sectors to invest in. And from geography, it doesn't have to be the sexy six. It can include these cities that are far outside of that because there could be answers kind of everywhere, more of a resilient spread across economy.
1: I would hope that it leads to an open-mindedness to a pretty wide geography because just investing in six markets was not a prudent response to the global financial crisis. Many of those markets got overbuilt. Look at Washington, D.C.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So the "sexy six, you and I can talk about that offline. That was not a clever grouping of market.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the last question on Leading Voice is always about careers. And we're not going to get to talk about your story, but you've told us so much through this conversation. And the last question is always, if you have advice for a young person, what would that be? And colored now by two things. One is a young person getting into business, navigating their career, knowing this current crisis and what the future might look like, A, and B, uh, advice for a young woman. You're a leading one of the leading women in the industry. So talk about both of those sides of that.
1: Okay, so I'll start with what came immediately to mind guidance for anybody, which is figure out what you're good at. And I mean that I'll use myself as an example. I'm the daughter of an English teacher and the granddaughter of an English teacher. I love words. And by some fabulous twist of faith, I came into a numbers business. I can do the numbers, but I work with people that are more comfortable with numbers than they are with words. So I can be the words person in the midst of a numbers company. Mm -hmm. Figure out what sets you apart, especially take advantage of your specific environment and see where do you have an advantage over everybody else in it and then try to play that. So that's my first bit of guidance.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: My second for the women is women have certain traits, certain instances where gender is relevant. They include loyalty. They include a desire to work together in teams. And I've been able to use that desire to work together collaboratively as a model for how to structure my firm. So recognize where some of our natural proclivities can be advantageous. You can help make a team work more effectively. That is an advantage that can help you to climb. Mm-hmm. The guides that I gave for both genders is pertinent for women in particular. I know as a woman, because I can speak in front of large groups, that's an advantage. I've gotten giant numbers of in, in opportunities to speak someplace because a, a conference organizer was trying to get gender balance mm-hmm. on the program. So know that's an opportunity and play that. It has been to my great good fortune that I have been one of the few women in a particular setting. And that's allowed me great opportunities such as the one that's happening right now, Matt.
0: <laughs> it's true. It's true. And any comment for someone planning the career looking out over the next 10 or 15, you know, 20 year career, 30 year career in real estate with, with the aftermath of COVID, where investment sure. is, where cities go, where real estate moves?
1: Well, I'm going to take a slightly narrower view of it, which is if you're somebody that's new in this industry that was not responsible for the investments that got made pre-COVID, that we're going to watch how they play out, take notes, talk with people that did make those investments about what this has taught them. Mark Twain's line about history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. covid may not be our last pandemic. It will not for sure be our last economic downturn. It won't be our last global crisis. So learn lessons about what are smart moves and what are stupid moves in a downturn. And your older peers are going to be thinking through what they wish they had done, what they're glad they did. Um, Buy them a drink in the era when the we can do that again and talk to them about what they've learned from this and what they would advise you to know to extract from it. Mm.
0: It's really wonderful advice. And it's funny, we started the conversation with the question for you and me where we have both lived through five or six of these things. And those five or six experiences are highly dense times in our careers. And for leaders where at this point in our career, we get to be, this is when it's all tested.
1: I agree completely.
0: Mary, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been wide ranging. It's been fascinating. It's been wonderful. And we will keep talking about all this.
1: Thank you, Matt. I've really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you for listening into Leading Voices. And I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.